Make more birdies. A bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. This is not a tip. This is a prescription, trust me. Mm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance. Welcome to Birdies and Bourbon. Sit down and have a sip. Welcome back, everybody, to the Birdies and Bourbon show. Um, so, you know, this is we're having a lot of firsts. I'll tell you this. And uh, we have a first-time Emmy winner on the show. Not only is he an Emmy winner, he's a six-time Emmy winner <laughs> and CEO of The Real McCoy uh, Bailey Pryor. Bailey, cheers, man. Thanks for coming on with us. How's it going? Where cheers, man. How you guys it's doing? Great. It's going great. Sorry, I had to sneak a little sip in. So one thing that I do like, and, and I'm going to be totally honest, I have tried uh, some four square uh, distillate before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not tried the real McCoy yet up until just that. And usually we, uh, when we're, folks are coming on, if I haven't tried it, I like to wait and get um, and kind of get, uh, I'd like to hear it from, from you, right? I mean, you know sure. more about this stuff than I ever will. Um, but, uh, you know, everything, I did take some time to, to kind of catch up on uh, who Bailey Pryor uh, was, um, who Bill McCoy was, uh, which is, is a real guy. A lot of times we see individuals or, or portrayals of people on bottles or labels and brands, and it's not actually, you know, it may be a, a mythical person or, or a fictitious person. This dude's yeah. a real dude. He was a real guy and, and had real interesting ex- exploits uh, in the 1920s, yes. Yeah, so so I hope you can share a little bit of that with us. I think we're going to go and correct me if I'm wrong. We're going to go for we're going to sample the three year, the five year, and then what I I'm really looking forward to the twelve year. Um, I think I, I'm going to coin this as a um, this is going to be a a bourbon drinkers rum tasting. Is that fair? <laughs> Absolutely fair. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, no colas involved in this one. Uh, no, no colas, uh, no added sweeteners. This is real rum, and that's the big thing about you know what we're trying to do with Real McCoy and at Foursquare Distillery in general is the concept of of educating people who are not accustomed to rum, um, who may earlier in their lives had the only experience they have with rum are sort of these sweetened rum, these industrial rums that um, do, don't really reflect what traditional rums are all about. Uh, it's not that those are bad or anything like that, and, and ours are good. It's just these are two very different things, and, and the average consumer in the United States doesn't understand the difference of those two uh, uh, sides of the spectrum in rum. And so, um, you know, with sort of the big industrial folks, they have to make large volumes of, you know, massive volumes, millions of cases, and it's they have to do that very inexpensively. So they do certain things that are different than the people who are the traditionalists. Um, on islands like Jamaica or Martinique or, or Barbados, and where our, our distillery is, Richard Seals Distillery in Barbados. So um, we're all traditionalists, and we we do things without additives. We do actual aging um, stuff like that. So it's it's a, a very different flavor profile. And in many cases, I've had people come up to me afterwards and say, "I had no idea rum could taste like this. <laughs> it tastes more like a whiskey than a rum." And what they're referring to really is the, the fact that they've only really experienced flavored moonshine in their life. I think yeah. of it that way. Imagine if imagine if every whiskey you'd ever tried uh, was flavored moonshine and people sat around endlessly comparing the apple cranberry to the strawberry banana when the whole time it was just artificial flavors. Right. So um, obviously that's not the case in whiskey, but I'm just using it as an analogy. And that that pretty much is the case in large scale rum. Um, so when you get to these traditional small craft distilleries, um, then you run into, um, products that are not made that way at all. We don't use multi-column stills and make millions of cases. We're a pot distilled, 
uh, product. We, we do, you know, long-term fermentations in, in controlled environments. Um, we manage very precisely our raw materials. It's exactly the way whiskey's made. Um, and we, uh, we then age the product, and that's where you get um, lignans and tannins from the wood, which are very familiar flavor notes for whiskey drinkers, especially bourbon drinkers, because we actually age our rum in former bourbon barrels. And so it'll be very familiar to you. Yeah. So, and, and I don't know how much of the backstory we're going to get into as far as, as Bill goes. I mean, I, I kind of want to steer more towards the, towards the, the, the rum, if that's okay. Uh, I, what I will say and, and a, a plug for, uh, for yourself. And, and, and I think this is a, maybe a good place to start uh, with a little backstory about Bailey is uh, there's a, a fantastic documentary that you did on Bill McCoy. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and uh, that kind of led you into uh, my question of how do you go from a documentarian to a rum maker? I mean, that's like, I mean, I guess they're both making something, if you will, but it's, it's like one of them yeah. I'm going to watch and the other one I'm going to drink, man. I mean, I, I, what, what's going on there? It's not, uh, it's not common, I guess, but in my case, it's, it was an absolute joy. And, and, you know, it really came from the fact that with all of my documentary films, and I've been making documentary films for a long time, I used to own, um, if any of you are ski, skiers or snowboard enthusiasts, yeah. I used to own a company called Warren Miller Films. We make ski and snowboard movies all mm. over the world. And so I did that for a long time and sold that company and then started making um, historical and biographical films, um, environmental films, medical, educational films, for mostly for PBS, but worked for you know close to a dozen different networks, Discovery, ESPN, Animal Planet, um, Travel Channel, lots like that. Um, so the, the idea for me is to pick out different subjects that I find very interesting. And that's really what I do is, is make movies that I, I find very interesting and unique. And, um, I do all of my own research and all of my own writing. So I'm a real research hound and I'll dive all the way down the road on a subject and, and, uh, and do the research and put the whole storyline together. And so I started doing this for the, for the rum running, um, documentary film, which I, turned out to be a really interesting experience because a, a friend of mine came up to me and said, I've got a great idea for a movie for you. And most people who start a sentence with that line talking to me say the next line is, and that movie's about me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so in this case, he didn't say that he's a publisher friend of mine. He said, no, it's this book about this guy named Bill McCoy back in the 1930s. And we're republishing the book. So that's where okay. the, that's where the whole story started. So so hold on. So you were doing. So you weren't doing a rum run. You weren't doing a documentary on rum. It started with Bill McCoy, and that led you to the rum running documentary. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. So McCoy was the first of the rum runners, who in January 1920, he's the guy who kind of invented the whole business model of rum running. So in January of 1920, he filled up a a boat full of rum down in the Caribbean, sailed it up to New York City, and acted as a floating liquor store three miles offshore. Now that was not illegal because in 1920, three miles out was international water. So he could stand out there with impunity. He was so close to the shoreline, he could see the Statue of Liberty and there was nothing that the, the Coast Guard or the US government could do about it. So uh, on his very first day up there, he, he had a real, you know, moral code and was a very well-known and respected sea captain. This was not a mafioso guy. He was, this was long before the mafia and all that got involved in, in, in the alcohol trade, the illicit alcohol trade. He was just a guy who owned a bunch of boats and it was a terrible economy in the year 1919. He was looking for any product he could ship to make a living. You know, he'd lost both of his parents. He'd lost his 
you know, his, his wife had divorced him. So it was a really bad year for him economically and personally in 1920 or 1919. So at the beginning of 1920, he was ready for a change and he decided I'm going to fill up a boat full of rum and I'm going to sail to New York and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to do it legally. I'm not going to break the law and I'm not going to rip anybody off. Right. So that's, that's exactly what he did. He wouldn't cut the alcohol with anything. And that's why his product and he became known as the real McCoy. That's why we all know that phrase today. Because everybody else who started copying McCoy and showing up with their own boats full of alcohol, they would step on the alcohol. They'd cut it with turpentine, wood alcohol, prune juice, water. In order to stretch the volume and make more money, McCoy refused to do that. So you got unopened bottles, you got unopened cases when you bought from McCoy. Hmm. So, it's, as you mentioned there, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, you, you mentioned about how, how you know, Bill wasn't involved with, uh, you know, wasn't a mafia guy or organized crime or anything like that. And, and it's almost, and, and I'm cheating a little because I have watched the documentary, but, you know, and, and you do get a little on the tail end about how things change. But, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't catch this in there, but as you're talking, it's kind of like the, the absence of Bill McCoy in this industry kind of allow other people to get in that are, that were doing some of those kind of weird things, not affiliated with Bill whatsoever. But I mean, they t- kind of took that, that regulator, if you will, that was making sure things were done, you know, on, on the up and up. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, he, he certainly became a media darling. You know, the newspapers in New York City found out that he was out there. And, and some of those guys, some of those reporters went out and they wrote articles about him. And he was just saying, look, there's I'm not breaking the law. I'm not ripping off my customers. I'm out here trying to do legitimate business. And this is legitimate. There was nothing in the yeah. law that prevented him from doing it. It's just like being an early, you know, uh, cannabis pioneer in the United States right. when the laws when the laws allowed it. You know, he yeah. wasn't doing it illegally. So some people might look at it and say, well, that's still bad, but, but technically it was not illegal. That's so right. he took advantage of a circumstance. And I think that's a nice modern day analogy. And now you see where that's going with, you know, 16 or 18 states now legal. with oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, those, those prohibition issues, you know, in the long run never really work when you try to enforce, you know, legislatively <laughs> enforce prohibition, but uh, it, it is the case. And so in, in McCoy's case, um, he became such a, a well-known figure. In fact, he became one of the most well-known people in America and in certain parts of the English language speaking world because he was like the, the face of legal defiance, you know. Um, he was like the Tony Hawk of, of, uh, of rum running, you know, skateboarding was a crime until Tony Hawk came along right. and all of a sudden it was like, Oh, Tony. Oh, that Tony. The same thing with McCoy. So, um, he was a very interesting character and he kind of maintained that moral code throughout. And so I found this person fascinating because, you know, he's the only name, you know, from the prohibition <laughs> era who wasn't a psychopathic murderer. Right. Al Capone, <laughs> Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, all these guys running exactly. around with Tommy guns, killing people. And then McCoy, who refused to break the law or rip off his customers. It's such a great, you know, dichotomy. Yeah. So I thought it was a great story. And I went and pitched it at PBS. And then the president of the network actually turned me down originally and said, no, you know, we're PBS. We don't we wear ties. And we don't do films about alcohol. And I said, come on, man, this is such a great American story. And they just didn't want to do it. So I ended up making the film by myself with my own money. I was just so interested in the story. And so I had to fit it in between other movies that I was making. And it took me five years to complete the film. But it, it gave me a lot of time to do the research and to, and to write it properly. And because I didn't have the budget, I had to direct it and edit it. And, of course, um, you know, I was a cinematographer and all that stuff. So I had to do a lot of jobs, wear a lot of hats on that one. And then when the film was finally finished, I brought it back to the network and I showed it to the president again and said, just watch it and tell me what you think. 
And he was skeptical, but he called me the next day and said, it's fantastic. We're going to put it on the air right away. <laughs> and I was like, great. And then he, uh, about six months later, after it was on the air, I get this letter in the mail saying from the Academy, National Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences saying you've been nominated for five Emmy Awards for writing, directing, editing, cinematography, and best picture Wow! in the documentary category. So my lovely wife, Jennifer, and I got to go to the Emmys and uh and we ended up winning all five wow on the stage five times which was horrifying um but we did win the the emmys and it was a total blast and uh you know it was very strange unexpected Um, did that set a record by the way it did set a record it's the first time in the academy's history that one person won the emmy in five different disciplines on the same film okay how many speeches did you have written what's that how many speeches did you have written None. <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting to win anything. I mean, you know, you're, we were we were up against. I think up in the in the Boston area, we were up against Nova. We were again. We were up against um, WGBH and all their amazing documentary films. So it was a. It's a tough market uh, for sure to be in. And um, we did. Uh, I just I was surprised to to win anything. But it Very was cool. kind of cool. That's awesome. Congrats, man. Yeah. Thank you. So, so we're fast forward, and I'm. By the way, I'm. Uh, I'm sampling the three year. And to your point, it's like, yeah, you can just. Uh, I mean, if you added anything, and maybe it'd be a cube ice. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't even know why good. I would want to do that. It's, it's the only white rum you're going to want to drink neat. Yeah. You know, so, so it's actually aged it, three years. It's pot distilled and actually aged for three years, and then we, then we, then we filter it once actually to get it closer to a clear color, which most North American people have you know, uh, learn to drink white rum and mixed drinks and things like that. So we do that. Yeah. This is not the stuff that you're pulling off the behind the bar. Well, you can't get this behind the bar, but it, it's not your, when you're thinking about a rum and Coke or a, a pina colada or what have you. However, it would probably be damn good in one. I just don't know why you would do it. But. Well, lots of people do. We, we do um, the three year ends up being in lots of different cocktails, mojitos, you know, yeah. uh, daiquiris, all kinds of different things. And the good thing about that is that even if you are interested in doing sweetened cocktails like mojitos or, um, you know, painkillers and things like that. The one great thing about a traditional rum like Real McCoy is that you can actually taste the spirit through the sweetened um, mixers. Oh, yeah, it's not breaking it down with all the. Yeah. yeah. If you take a sweetened rum and you put it with a sweet mixer, like a Coke, or, you know, uh, you know, put it in a mojito or something, the rum just disappears yeah. and all you taste is sweet. And people go, oh, I love this. And their brain is just going, yay, on all that sugar, you know. Right, right. But in, in our case, you can actually taste the rum and you get the sense of, wow, this is a really beautiful cocktail. It's a really balanced cocktail. So I guess a, a couple of things. One is I want to talk about, so I'm going to hold these two up. So for the people that are just listening and not watching, um, so I've got, I've got a, a, a white rum and then I've got a, I'm going to call it a natural rum, uh, white rum and left and natural, uh, right rum, white, yeah, white in the right, <laughs> natural in the left. I'll get that natural out. Natural meaning amber, amber colored aged rum. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and then, and the, you know, the, the, the brown rum is what you're going to get out of the barrel. And then the white rum is going to be filtered and I'm assuming you're filtering it through charcoal. We are. And, and when it comes out of the barrel at three years, it's a slightly lighter hue than our five year, the, the, the second one you were just holding. Yep. Um, it's more of a straw color. So it comes out of the barrel in this beautiful straw, light, light, you know, um, straw color. We filter it one time, which which removes um, most of the color. So you still can see a tiny little patina to it and see that it's not, you know, clear, clear. It's not like vodka clear, water clear. 
No. So yeah, that's showing you that it was actually aged. If it wasn't aged, then the only way it would get any color is to add food coloring. And so when you when people are talking about dark rums, they're usually talking about, you know, industrial rums that have food coloring added to them. That and that's where they get their color. In our case, the color comes from the barrel. So, and this I'm a little off topic, but I've I've got a rum expert sitting in front of me. So there are some very famous uh, whiskeys uh, made mm -hmm. in the southern parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. One state specifically that mm -hmm. they filter through charcoal, mm -hmm. and their whiskey is still brown. It's it's not clear, and, mm -hmm. and it's required that they filter through charcoal. So how is that not doing the same thing that's traditional in rum where it's stripping the color out of there? How's that not doing it in those other whiskeys? Well, you'd have to ask them, but you know, from my understanding, in, your opinion. in my opinion, in my understanding of the process and, and my understanding of the process comes from um, actually many years of apprenticeship. Now I've been apprenticing at Foursquare Distillery with Richard Seal for, you know, nine, almost 10 years. Um, I did a, I've done other small apprenticeships and learned from other producers in Martinique. Um, I also did an apprenticeship at the Bolandolic Distillery in Scotland and learned about single malt whiskey production, who also go through all the same steps and similar processes. Um, and when you charcoal filter an aged spirit, it will strip the color out. Yeah, I mean, you would never, your five and 12, any of your other expressions, you would never run those through a filter, correct? No, we don't run, run those through a filter. And, yeah. and you, don't, you don't want to because when you're doing that, it also takes some of the flavor profile away, which is part and parcel to that process. Now, people do different things. Master blenders that, depending on their tradition, depending on their background, what products they're making, you can add um, spirit caramel to the, to the, to the um, alcohol, which will elevate the color back to its original barrel look. You know, sure. the, you know, that it got out of the barrel, which is what most producers are doing. Yeah. And in order to do that, spirit caramel is not sweet. Um, it is totally accepted in Scotland. The Scots do it. Uh, I know that some of the people down in, in uh, certain states in the south in the United States, if we're not going to be naming names. Um, we'll also it doesn't matter to me. I, I was just more talking about I was more just, kind of I'm just going, reacting to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm totally fine. I was really talking about how with with rum, because, I mean, most people don't you know, it, it, it wouldn't correlate to individuals. If you're not if you're not drinking rum that's finished in the way or sense that you're finishing it, it, it would like really throw people off and how that's happening. Yeah, yeah, not finishing aging, like aging, aging is excuse years. me, I'm sorry. Finishing, yes. finishing people say, oh, it's in here for three months or six months or yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. That won't have a significant effect in that short period of time. But if you're there for years and years and years, then you start to have that effect. So, yeah, most people have to do that. They have to have to put um, spirit caramel in there, which is common and not not um, uh, a problem. Actually, most most uh, folks, I think a lot of the tequila people do this, too. Um, you know, when you're aging for six months in a reposado, but it's a nice amber color, that has to be food color. You know, it has to be the sure. The uh, the um, uh, E150A is what it's called. And literally, you're putting 10 drops per liter to get yeah. the color. And so it's a very small color ratio, and it's not considered offensive um, in any sector of the spirits industry that I know of. The other interesting technique is something that the French developed you know, decades ago, which is the concept of aging water. You're blending water. So think of it this way. If you have a, a something that's been in the barrel for just a few years and it's a, it's a light amber color sure. and you put, you blend it from 65% barrel strength down to 40% bottling strength, you're going to lose a lot of the color when that water is titrated into the, into the blend. 
Um, so one way that they combat that is they'll age water for several months and that the water itself will, will receive the same lignans and tannins from the wood to give it, or the tannin from the wood to give it that color. And so they'll blend it with colored water, naturally colored water. So that's a technique that I know some rum producers do. Um, I would assume many whiskey people do. I know that the cognac people do it. Um, so they're kind of the pioneers of that. But um, the other big difference is how, how uh, the climate affects that aging process. And where, where our distillery, where Foursquare Distillery makes, uh, where Real McCoy is made, um, you know, they're losing between 6 and 8% to evaporation every year. Mm-hmm. So that's the, when you fill the barrel, the, barrel, the wood just sucks in that rum. And, and through the course of a temperature changes every day, there's a little bit of movement there that goes on. The wood gets completely saturated with the spirit. Same thing's happening in Kentucky and Tennessee when they, sure. when they put spirit in the barrels and it evaporates right out of the barrel. And that's why when you walk into those rick houses, that smell is so pervasive. You walk in and you're just immediately hit by the scent of alcohol. And uh, that's the called the angel's share. That's the stuff evaporating right through the barrel. Well, in Barbados, we lose six to eight percent every year. But in Kentucky, Tennessee, or continental Europe, you might lose about four percent. You know, three percent in some cases. If you go up all the way up to Scotland, you're losing one or two percent per mm. year. Mm. So it's going to take in Scotland much, much longer to impart the tannins to get the color, the lignans to get the flavor profile, those wood sugars, um, than it would in Barbados or really anywhere along the equator. So at 12 years, which we're going to get to that in a minute, our 12-year rum, we've usually lost about 60% of the contents of the barrel by the time we get to 12 years. But in Scotland, at 12 years, they've only lost about 12%. So they can have like a 50-year-old Scotch whiskey and only lose half the contents of the barrel. If you leave rum in a barrel in the Caribbean, after about 20 years, there's nothing left. You know, (laughs) it's physically impossible. It's like, that. look, that barrel doesn't even leak, right? It's like, I know, because no. there's nothing in there. <laughs> yeah, it's not leaking. And it's funny because, you know, 300 years ago when they were making rum down in the Caribbean, 400 years ago, the tradition goes back, uh, the, the, you know, people originally thought it was the staff that was drinking it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they realized, wait, how come every barrel is almost uniformly the same depth? You know, they couldn't possibly be drinking that much. I still think that on this show, Cal. <laughs> easy, easy, easy. <laughs> So we're drinking the uh, the three year, the five year, and the twelve year. And any particular reason for three, five, and twelve? And and I don't know if this is a, a good time to. You, you mentioned Foursquare earlier, and and uh, the distiller down there. That seems like you've uh, you you and Richard have uh, have really uh, hit it off in the, in the beginning and have a great relationship. But is is the three, five, and twelve? Is that kind of the uh, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, there there are certain flavor profiles that we like about those three and richard really richard is the person who developed the the concept of these but there's also sort of economic and market driven reasons to do this we wanted to have um you know a less expensive rum that we could sell into the cocktail scene in in um you know on a on a, on a bigger scale We'll never go mass market. We're not that kind of brand, but we'll certainly, we want to be in cocktail bars, but there's a lot of price pressure in the, in the you know, restaurant industry. So they want to have their inexpensive versions. So we did that. That's for the three-year. The five-year was designed to be kind of a switch hitter. So that's easy to drink neat. It's, it's affordable enough for the account to put it in cocktails um, and for consumers to, re- to reach from white rum to you know, properly aged traditional rums. And then finally, the 12-year, we went with that because the flavor profile is just amazing at that aging. 
Um, and when you go beyond 12 years in Barbados or really anywhere along the equator, you're losing so much to evaporation that it's becoming economically extinct. You can't, you can't market things that, you know, in, in the rum category, when, when, when I started with Richard, you know, 10 years ago, or, uh, you know, it was, it was impossible to sell a bottle of rum for $500 or $300. Uh, no one was doing it really. Um, it was extremely rare and, and kind of gimmicky usually. But, um, you know, now to get to like the, the oldest rum that Foursquare's ever you know, produced for us was 14 years. And I mean, they've been running that place for four generations. Wow. Uh, wow. The oldest product they've ever made is 14 years. But you, you see all these kind of brands that pop up in the rum sector. They're like 25 years old, and, <laughs> you know, 37 years old. And like, how do you? And it's twenty nine ninety nine. Like, give me a break. You know, yeah. aging. you can't lose that value of or that much volume in, or or you know, surpass, uh, uh, physical properties, like, you know, the physics of evaporation. So, so you get a little bit of gimmicky stuff going on. And, and so we're, we're trying to be the other end of the spectrum from that. And so you understand that when you, when you're tasting a product like this, it's a traditional product, it's totally legitimately made. It's extremely transparent. And in fact, this year, um, real McCoy rum is, has just become the very first beverage alcohol in America that includes beer, wine, and spirits. Um, to actually voluntarily list ingredients and serving facts oh. on our labels. And we got government approval to do this. And we're the first brand to do that. And it's, it's not on the bottles in your hand because we just went into printing on these labels. We just received the approval. So gotcha. what is being produced now down in Barbados from t- basically today forward, those are all the new back labels that show ingredients and serving facts. And, um, you know, prior to this, no one has ever done that in this industry, which I find amazing because, you know, people today care about what they're putting in their bodies. Most people want to drink less, but drink better. Mm-hmm. And this gives you the opportunity to be an informed consumer and take pride in knowing what's in the glass, because we have to demonstrate to the U S government that what we say, you know, that the fact that we have no cal, you know, 65 calories an ounce, zero carbs, zero fat, um, no added sugar, that we're gluten-free, that we're vegan, all of that has to be proven to them they have to accept that proof and then grant us the right to put this on the label. Nice. And then we also list our ingredients, which, um, you know, a lot of spirits producers. Don't and that, that's do. even a bigger no, no, right. It's yeah. like, especially yeah. don't do that. Yeah. Because, you know, stuff is put in spirits to make it, um, you know, to stretch it. It's essentially the exact same argument that was going on during prohibition when Bill McCoy was refusing to put stuff in his alcohol and everybody else was doing that. So I'm not saying that everybody else in the beverage alcohol space is doing that at all. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that I know there are lots of, of um, producers out there that wanted to put ingredients and serving facts in, in the, um, the TTB did not have the language in the law that allowed them to grant that access. And over time, it took us about three years, but over time, they finally did grant us that access. So it set a precedent and now other brands can follow. And we have a whole bunch of friends out there who are, who are other spirit producers um, including in the rum sector who want to now do this and can, because, uh, we were able to break that sort of glass. So nobody's pointing the finger at you going like, why'd you bring this up? They're pointing the finger at you saying, we glad you brought it up. Well, many people are, are coming to me and saying, we're really glad. And how did you do this? And how, can you help yeah. us figure out how to do this? And, and I don't think anybody's really upset that we brought this up because, um, we didn't bring this up in a way that makes it like mandatory for all brands to do this. This is a voluntary thing. You know, I'm not a fan of overt gov- government regulation. I don't want more government regulation in my life. Um, you know, but I do think that we should have some transparency for consumers so they can make informed decisions. Because in the rum sector, 
there are some brands out there that are, you know, putting in enormous amounts of added sugar to their spirit. So they're putting in, in some cases, 96 grams, 100 grams of sugar per liter. Now, when you measure that out, that's 23, 25 teaspoons of sugar in a single bottle. So imagine taking your favorite bourbon, you know, take some wild turkey and put 25 teaspoons of sugar in it. Jimmy Russell would lose his mind. (laughs) As soon as as he finds your address, right? It's uh... exactly. I've I've met Jimmy. I think he's an amazing person. And, and, uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, that's, that's how the traditional rum producers feel when these kind of boardroom brands show up and suddenly overnight, this brand will pop up. It's worldwide. It's 25 years old and, and it's sweeter than a Coca-Cola, you know, and, and you realize, okay, this is not, that's not real rum. You know, so we want people to understand what real rum is. And so if they can look on their label and see ingredients and serving facts in the USDA format, that exact format you find on every other food product in the country, you can't sell a bottle of water in the United States without listing ingredients and serving facts. So I guess how many calories are in every single bottle? (laughs) Exactly. So when you see, you know, oh, this is 320 calories, you know, per serving versus 65 or 90 or something, you'll really know. And I think that's fair. I also think it's fair to add allergens. We don't have any information on allergens in spirits. Um, we do in wine on, on some level, but in spirits, propylene glycol is a very commonly used, you know, glycerin is very commonly used um, product to create a mouthfeel like the product was aged, like it creates legs on the glass. Um, and so, uh, and it also has a sweetness to it, but it's the stuff you spray on in the wings of airplanes to prevent them from icing over. It's oh antifreeze. Wow. And they put it in pervasively in, in soft drinks in America. It's illegal to use in the European Union, but we do it in the States. And the, the uh, you know, a lot of brands will put that stuff in there. I'm allergic to propylene glycol. It immediately causes me to have a histamine reaction. And I just start to like turn red and swell up and break out in a rash. So I can't drink a lot of wines. Um, I, can't, I have to be very careful with which spirits I drink uh, because I have this allergic reaction. But there's no one out there that discloses this. Sure. So I think it's important to, just like gluten um, is a real problem for many people, I think we should be reporting what's being added to things. Yeah. Yeah. Noted. And I mean, you, you're kind of doing that already. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, you're making a statement on here of what, what it's blended with, um, you know, what it is, where you are. Uh, yeah. nothing added. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of doing, I guess, to the limitation that you can do it. I mean, you're telling as much as you can with what you can, what, what you're, uh, with what regulation will allow you to put on the label. It's, exactly. it's on there already. Yeah. That's what was allowable at the time that yeah. we first developed our labels. Now they've agreed to open that up a little bit. And I think, you know, to the credit of the TTB, the tax trade bureau in the United States that they, um, you know, I think they've had enough people trying to, uh, to, to lobby them to, um, to allow this kind of disclosure, what they were primarily trying to prevent were false health claims that go back, you know, hundreds of years in the United States. There were, there were, you know, uh, back in the 1800s, you know, horse and wagon buggy guys coming around with this cure-all, you know, all it was was just alcohol, and, you know, and they were like, it's my Dr. McGillicuddy's cure-all, you know, says, it fixes all your aches and pains and diseases. And, and they were just lying to people about what, what this product could do. And so the TTB, for a very long time has been trying to prevent people from making false health claims. And so when you go in and say no added sugar, they say, well, that's a, that sounds like a health claim to us. You're trying to make this sound healthy. And that's right. not at all what we're trying to do. We're just trying to say, we're not putting 100 grams of sugar, 25 <laughs> teaspoons 
in a bottle of rum. That's what we're doing. So, yeah, we may be unique on the shelf compared to uh, compared to other uh, some other brands, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and in all fairness, it's just a couple brands that go that far. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few brands that do a little bit, um, you know, just to kind of like take the edge off of something that's maybe a little harsh or whatever. And I can understand that the tequila people do it. Um, the rum people do it. There's, you know, it's, it's really frowned upon in, in whiskey. I know. So, um, that's why we're going to lean so much more in the whiskey direction in terms of our flavor profile for people that try us for the first time. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's what I was getting ready to say. I mean, what you know, again, tasting for the first time, uh, you know, it's a, you know that mouth feels there. Um, you know, it's, I mean, this is actually if you don't like bourbon, if you you know you're kind of ah get that kind of bite at the on the on the uh, on the finish, and it's a little harsh for me, and I don't really you know like bourbon or whiskey doesn't do it for me. I mean, it, like you can absolutely point somebody in this direction, and it gives you that uh, you get you get. Uh, uh, kind of that robust nose you've got, uh, but it's smooth, but it's, it's buttery. And then you get, you know, when it hits your tongue, I mean, most of this is kind of hitting on the front of the tongue from a sensory standpoint. And then you've got that smooth kind of velvety finish that, uh, just can get you in a lot of trouble if you're not, uh, <laughs> if you're not, if you're not self-regulating. Right. So, but yeah, yes, it, by it, all means self-regulate. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, you know, that's what was so interesting to me that, you know, in working with Richard seal and he's just such an amazing, um, uh, you know, sort of innovator and, and in his own right, an incredible master uh, distiller, you know, he's creating products that are so well balanced and that's the hallmark of the Barbados tradition. See, in Barbados, pe people just think rum is rum, right? But there's this incredible spectrum around rum. The Jamaicans use pot stills, and they do a, a very long, very, very long fermentation period that generates flavor profiles that are basically, you know, in colloquial terms, referred to as funky, right? So funked, yep. funked up, um, beautiful rums with huge flavor profiles. You know, you're talking 1,500, 1,600 congeners. And, and then the Barbadians, because they use traditionally a, a blend of two different types of stills. They use a traditional alambic pot still, but that's also then that rum is then blended with rum that's made in a twin column coffee still, which was the, you know, the invention of Enos coffee in the 18, late 1800s. And hmm. so that coffee still is a column still, it's only two towers and it removes um, a certain amount of the flavor profile and, and um, uh, you know, certainly a lot of the congeners in that process and makes a very, very light rum. So where the pot rum comes in very heavy and funky and the twin column coffee still comes in light, you now blend those two, put that in the barrel and age it. That's the Barbados tradition. No additives, no fake age statements, none of that kind of stuff. So that's how. So Barbados when you're saying you've rum. got a sink, when you're saying you've got a single blended rum, is that what you're saying is you're mixing the, the, the distillates from the two stills, but it's yeah. the same distillate, just. Uh, two different devices. So it's single. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So single blended means single estate blend of two stills. Yeah, gotcha. Not, not a blend of two different distilleries, two stills at the same distillery. Right. So that's single blended rum. And the Jamaicans traditionally do just the pot still. And the Martinicans, um, and, and both the Jamaicans and the Barbadians are making their rums from molasses. The Martinicans and the Guadalupans are making their rums not from molasses, but from fresh pressed sugarcane juice 
because molasses is the byproduct of making refined sugar. And during the Napoleonic era, Napoleon forbade the, the, uh, the farm owners down in, in, in the French protectorate islands, Martinique and Guadeloupe, from making sugar. Because if they made sugar, it would end up in the British sugar trade because the Brits dominated the sugar trade. They'd make a, the Brits would make a bunch of profit and they would use that money to fight Napoleon. So he said, nobody can make sugar. So wow. that's why the Martinicans and the Guadalupans make um, fresh pressed juice as the base. Now, sugarcane is a form of grass. So when you take fresh pressed sugarcane juice, yes, it's sweet, but it has this very vegetal flavor to it. When you ferment and distill that, you get this very vegetal flavor note that's like, it's as different to a traditional molasses rum as a mezcal is to a tequila, or as a peated scotch is to a, an Islay, or, I mean, a, a Highland scotch, you know, an unpeated. Yeah. Hmm. So it's really interesting, a very unique spectrum. When you get over to Jamaica, some of the locations there are super traditional, like the Hampton Estate. Um, our friend Christelle Harris owns Hampton and, and her family. And they do dunder pits, which is like this very extreme uh, traditional form of, of uh, fermentation in, in vats. If you know anything about beer making, it's like a cool ship. Um, so they have this huge surface area for the fermenter tank and it just goes for weeks and weeks. And, and so they get, you know, these huge flavor profiles. It's just absolutely brilliant rum, but it's kind of an acquired taste for some people. And, uh, I think it's fantastic. So you have this unbelievable spectrum of flavor profiles. It's really interesting history and traditions. Rum is so dynamic, just as dynamic and interesting as the, in the, as the whiskey world in the traditional sense. Yeah. So, and, and when you're picking, um, so everything that you're, that, that we're tasting, everything that you do is aged in, uh, in bourbon barrels, right? Mm -hmm. We're only using one, you know, that for, for bourbon, they're only using a one time fresh uh, American Oak. And then, and then you're buying, you're, you're moving them down. Is there a particular profile that you would go to, or is, is a, is a bourbon barrel, a bourbon barrel? Um, no, I mean, you know, this is much more when you, when you get into wood science, you know, the barrel science, there's a lot going on in barrel science and different things occur here where you're using different types of wood as a, as a foundation, you'll get different results from that. You use like the Quercus alba tree, the American white oak or Quercus petraea, which is the red French oak. Um, those two types of wood will do completely different things, mainly because there's different porosity in the wood. So American oak is extremely hard wood, dense wood. Um, but the French oak is much softer. And all, when you look at it under a microscope, it almost looks like Swiss cheese or like sort of striped. So a lot more surface area interaction occurs with Quercus petraea. Um, there's different forms within Quercus petraea. You start moving over to the Czech Republic and Hungary, and they have different, you know, same genus, but a slightly different species. Um, you get different results there. Now people use, um, you know, uh, products that, that were, so, so it's, it's not only the type of wood, the type of original tree, but it's then the level of char that occurred before you got it. Um, and so, you know, some places are aging their wines, you know, these beautiful uh, brandies and things like that. Um, cognac or Calvados, things along those lines. Um, those will be Madeira. They, depending on the producer, they might do very heavy char and do a very small aging, very, just a few years, or they'll do a very light char and go for extremely long aging because you can over oak your wine, um, in that process. If you over char that barrel, if you're going to go for a long aging. So that's kind of the methodology as I understand it. I'm not an expert in wine aging, but that's how I've learned it. Um, and so when you're buying barrels, you're looking for these characteristics. So you have to make the decision. Do I want, you know, a different kind of flavor profile, based on the tree. So I'm going to pick red French oak versus American white oak, 
Um, or do I want it because of the char level? Or do I want it based on how long or how many times the, pre the barrel has been previously used? Every single time you use a barrel, it's a lot like a battery. It's like you, every time you use it, it gets weaker and weaker in terms of its effect. So until the point where it kind of reaches neutrality and doesn't really impart anything into your spirit. So you have to be careful not to buy spent barrels um, if you want to get an effect. Um, and, and you really want to measure out all these factors. So that was a very simplistic way of thinking about blending as I've learned it. Um, and so that's what everybody's going after in the secondary market for barrels. You know, obviously bourbon folks, you got to use brand new barrel every single time. That's the regulation. And so the bourbon industry is this wonderful conduit for used barrels. So we might go to any number of bourbon producers um, who, who have to get rid of their barrels and use new barrels for the next batch. So the whiskey people, the Scotch whiskey people, the tequila people, the rum people, um, and now even beer and other folks are, are grabbing wine. People are grabbing used bourbon barrels. And so they're aging. So you're getting even more complexity now with, you know, an ex bourbon barrel that went to this, you know, vineyard and aged this wine. And then now it's going down to Barbados and being used in, in, uh, in, in rum, you know, or to Jamaica and being used in rum. So you got a lot of vari variability there. And then you have to decide also um, how long you want to age and at what ABV you want your spirit to be at. Those will all have, every single one of those things I just described has a radical effect on the outcome of the product. And so if you go in at a very high ABV, you know, over 65%, let's say, ABV meaning alcohol by volume. Right. Um, so that would be going in at 130 proof. And then you, um, you age there, you'll get a slightly different effect than if you went in at 63 and a half percent, you know, or, or, or some people go lower, but I think most people don't go below 63. Um, and a lot of people are going in at, you know, 68 and things like that. So, you know, your spirit, your, um, your, the, the, the raw material that you're working with and the, and the environment that you're in has a major effect. So again, the location of that barrel, like I said earlier, has a massive effect on whether you're in Scotland or Barbados or Kentucky, all of these things are what they are. And, and essentially you, you have to make as a producer, you have to make literally hundreds of decisions to get to your individual flavor profile on your product. And that's what Richard has done so brilliantly with really all of his rums, because he's figured out a, a raw material process of his fermentations and taking molasses and going into fermentations, sending it to the two stills and then making these blends and aging. Every single product he makes is all done exactly that same way. Yeah. It's only after, um, it's been through the aging process that then he, he blends different, uh, barrels that have different amounts of pot still. in them. so some barrels will be heavy pot still. Some barrels will be less amounts of pot still. And so you'll, some will have a heavier flavor profile and some will be lighter. So finding that balance is really important. And that's what creates all these different products, um, from Foursquare yet. They're all in certain ways, very similar. First off, we haven't talked enough about how amazing these are all. They are great. Um, but let me ask you, you this. Cal, you're, you, you talk about this a lot on the show. And we're seeing a lot more, especially in the States here, you know, like the finishes on these bourbons and whiskeys. Have you guys partnered with, with anybody with your old barrels coming back to the States to be like, finished with uh, bourbon or whiskeys? We do not because the economics of getting the barrels down to Barbados is prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. And the operation at Foursquare is getting, uh, has so much demand on it now that, that, uh, Richard doesn't want to release barrels. Okay. It's also because in, in general, a blended rum, a traditional blended rum doesn't exist in a single barrel. 
So you can't go down to Foursquare and say, I want to taste that barrel and I want to buy that barrel because in the barrel is only a component of the blend. And so that kind of blows a lot of whiskey people's minds because they think they're so used to saying, Oh, I get to go taste this barrel and I'm going to buy that whole barrel. And that's the finished product. I'm talking about the the actual barrel itself though. Yeah. The physical barrel we don't release because we need them to do, keep aging. And there's no oak trees down in Barbados. Hold on to them. And when they get, honestly, when they get spent, you know, when they, when they basically move to neutral, um, Richard, can chop them up and burn them to you to char the next round of barrels coming yeah. out. Nice. So you burn it with itself and then you not, you know, it, it gives you a better flavor profile. Circle of life. Yeah. I like, like yeah. that. Yeah. Circle of life. Uh, environment, <laughs> environmentally friendly. How about that? Uh, recycling. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these are, uh, yeah, you're, you're, um, you're definitely changing my, I, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've definitely had plenty of aged rums. I, I wouldn't say I've gone down this road before, uh, from a rum standpoint, but yeah, I mean, everything is just, um, absolutely beautiful. They, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, interesting enough, I don't, uh, there, there's nothing that I'm, that I'm smelling here. That's kind of, that's off putting. That's like, Ooh, you wouldn't want to drink that. And, and they just, uh, you know, I mean, with age, right. I mean, you're, you're kind of intensifying those, uh, you know, the profile, be it on the nose or the palate, but you're just, you know, you, you, I'm getting more, getting more butter. I'm getting more honey. I'm getting more, uh, uh, you know, more molasses into that. And then, you know, again, as it progresses, uh, starting to, I do get a little more kind of cinnamon. I wouldn't say that I start to get heat through these. No. Um, is, is that a fair, uh, w- would you say the same? Yeah. I mean, you're certainly starting to get some of the spice from the wood. Yes. Those are the wood sugars. And so the longer it's been in the barrel, technically the, you're going to start to pick up more of those wood notes and that's going to come across. Your brain's going to interpret those congeners, um, as kind of, uh, uh the, the spice components and, um, and, and actually the vanillin, the natural vanillin that exists in the wood, you'll start to get that. Mm-hmm. But you know, what's really important about tasting these rums is what you're not tasting. Mm-hmm. You're not tasting a slap in the face of vanilla. Nope. You're not tasting a slap in the face of banana. Mm-mm. Both of those are additives that are pervasive in the industrial alcohols and in industrial rums. Um, so that's food, food, uh, uh, flavoring that is added. And so you're not tasting any of those things. You're not tasting green apple. That's a big mistake in the fermentation process. So, you know, you can, you can, um, really appreciate Richard's, um, artisanry by, um, just experiencing that flight as you go through it and you realize, wow, there's like a balance specifically to each of these blends and each blend is slightly different. Of course, it's got different aging, but you get still this really smooth experience every time. Most of the white rums, if you take a white rum and sip it, you are tasting something that's like gasoline unless it has had added sugar. Yep. And, and if you don't remember this stuff, you know, or, or, or you've been working with, um, you know, or, or you haven't had exposure to this stuff. I remember when I was in college, tequila across the board was so bad that my friends and I, and, and all due point. respect and love to my friends in tequila, but it was, it was so harsh that we would dare each other to do shots. It was like this, something you would challenge your friends yeah. at the bar in college Just and you had to have this. salt and you had to have a lime. And it was this ritual of trying to mask this gasoline that we were drinking, this you know crazy stuff. That was tequila. And now today, magically, every tequila on the market is smooth, 
Mm-hmm. You know, no one's. Where's the last yeah. time you saw people pounding salt and lemons? You mm-hmm. know. Oh no, they're like stick it in the stick it in the freezer. Let it uh, let it get a little viscous in. Uh, yeah, we're we're just throwing that stuff straight. It's not going to back now, right? So how does that happen? How does that magically occur? That occurs, um, you know, through a process of of changing regulations to allow people to do different things to their spirits. Yeah. And so that kind of thing happens in in many spirit categories. And again, I'm just circling back to why I think it's important that we have yeah. information about what's what are the ingredients in here, because then that'll tell you what's really going on. It's amazing. Yep. And when you're not doing that stuff, people don't even know how special the product is. Yeah, that's the big thing. Well, that's. I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to do it. I mean, I don't have anything that's. I've got a few rums. I don't have anything that I would consider the you know the. Um, the tainted, uh, tainted rums, you know, or the, the yeah, additive rums. shouldn't go there anyway. Cause I don't want to talk negatively about any brand sure. or, yeah. or anything yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. anybody yeah, it, individually. Absolutely. And, and I, yeah, but I don't have any other rums out there. Yeah. And I don't have any, you know, I mean, what I have on the shelf, I mean, it's, uh, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a bourbon drinker and, and a whiskey drinker. So I, you know, I'm going to tend to gravitate towards, uh, towards something like this, but I, I do think, you know, in your statements and kind of where you're going and, and changing the, uh, I don't want to say the regulation, but uh, I guess it is in a sense, right? I mean, it's kind of adapting to, hey, the, you know, the regulation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in what you can, because I mean, that's a big thing in alcohol is, is what you can put on the label and what you have to put on the label. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, even, even with your age statement, I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, there's some, you see some double digit years out there that are, it's like, well, I don't know how that can be real. And, you know, I mean, with yours, you know, age and then the number and then the years. I mean, I think that with rum, isn't that the way it has to be stated? That is the only legal age statement for all beverage alcohol in America. So yeah. you can only do two things. You can say aged five years or five years old, right. And just interchange the number for whatever your actual aging is. So yeah. age five years or five years old. And honestly, if you look at any whiskey, that's all you'll see. Right. You don't see like Solera whiskey. Right. right? You don't see uh, whiskey that's 130 years old from Kentucky. You know, you just don't see it. But in rum, you do. You see Solera all over the place, which is just a, a fancy word for not. <laughs> <laughs> Solera 29, you know, it's not 29 years old. That is yeah. not 29 years old. Right, right. Well, so so I, um, you did mention, um, and, I, and I do see on your um, on your web page. So the real McCoy, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned some cocktails earlier. So if, mm-hmm. if we were going to mix these with something, mm-hmm. what uh, what direction would you send us, and and what are we making? Well, I, I would say with a three year, I'd go for more of those traditional rummy cocktails that you're used to. But now you'll actually taste the spirit instead of just sugar. Um, so your mojitos, your, 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 uh, your, your interesting, um, daiquiris, your, in, in fact, with the three years, since we have no added sugar, um, we have less added sugar than most vodka these days. Wow. So it's fantastic in a bloody Mary. Wow. And, and it's oh, nice. really, people don't even think of rum with a bloody Mary, but I think it's fantastic. Wow. With a bloody Mary. <laughs> and if you want to get really interesting with your rums and bloody Mary, go to Martinique, buy some of the Martinique and rums and you know that that the French protector rums are spelled R H U M. Yeah, sure. And so if you see a product named R H U M, it's going to have that vegetal flavor profile and it's really fun. <laughs> and you get, you get that and you put that in a bloody Mary with the tomatoes and the celery and, oh, yeah. and the other vegetal things. And it's fantastic. So I highly recommend those. Um, when you move to our five year that we're using for like really high end um, cocktail bar experiences. So you're doing complex and, 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 riffs on, on, uh, daiquiris. Um, you know, you're doing riffs on Negronis, 
things like that. When you move up to the 12 year, you're doing old fashions, Manhattans, you know, beautiful high end whiskey cocktails. And I think another thing that, that the whiskey community will be really excited about when they taste these and they realize, you know, how usable they are, how great they are. Um, and, and, and it's in the same flavor profile. They'll also realize how incredibly inexpensive they are. Like, like our, our 12 year age with 60% evaporative loss is the same price as like a two year old bourbon in the United States, like $49. You know? I'm, so I'm glad you through. went down that road because I mean, you, you were talking about, you know, Dan mentioned, Hey, what do you do with the barrels? And it's like, yeah, we really ain't shipping them back because it's just economically, it doesn't work out. And, and, and for lots of other reasons that, uh, you know, you're, you're, um, uh, uh, I'm going to say non-domestic, right? If that's uh, if I can use that word, but you're in Barbados. I mean, that's where it's made. So you're bringing it in and it's uh, everything about it to me says expense, expense. I mean, you're making molasses for crying out loud before you're yeah. actually making um, the juice. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just the processes that are involved. And to your point, I mean, go look on the rum shelf and find the real McCoy on there. And it's actually for, for what you're getting compared to other things on the shelf it's an extremely fairly priced rum and i mean this is like a, actually a really cool gift i mean if people at valentine's day's coming up ladies there you so go. Hey, if you got a you got a bourbon drinker in the house get him get get him the 12 year and give uh, him something a little different I and if he doesn't that. like it you may like it. <laughs> no but i, I mean it, it, this is like a really there's a lot of cool spins on this that that i think you could go down the road of and I don't think it's going to disappoint. And and again, it, it may not may not be your daily, but it's a good. You know what? I've just I've I've been drinking so much bourbon or whiskey, and I just want something else. But I still want it to kind of hold up. I mean, this is really, really a really, really solid uh, solid way to go. Thank you, thank you. And yeah, I just think that it, you know, for all of us, what we're doing is we're having these great experiences, right? We all we all want that fun culinary experience. So it's nice to switch things up every every now and then and try something new. And, you know, bourbon being so dominated by that corn note, right? That 51% yep. corn sure. yep. it has, has a you know, serious signature to bourbon compared to, you know, sort of the single malts or the Irish or the sure. um, American whiskeys, even the Canadian whiskeys. And so when you, when you, when you get used to that note, it's like, it's like if you only drink skim milk and then you drink some whole milk and you're like, oh my God, it tastes like cream to me. You know, it, it's the same kind of thing or vice versa. I, I was thinking Water. like, oh my God, why have I been drinking skim milk all my life? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or you drink, all you drink is whole milk and you drink skim and go, this tastes like water. You know, it's, it's a radically different experience. And so you get used to what you're used to. But I think that it's not a stretch at all, even for people who are really fans of that corn note, um, to move to a traditional rum like Real McCoy 12 beer. You know, you sip that 12 and you're going to, I have honestly, and I can say this, Publicly and in all honesty, I have never had a whiskey drinker come back to me ever and say, oh, no, I don't like it. No, I don't know, no. I don't know how you would. I, now, you know what? If I were like a if I were a rye whiskey guy and I like that big, heavy spice kind of, you know, chewing on the back of my throat kind of thing, I could see how I'm like eh, it was OK. I, I may not go down that road. But if you're a bourbon person, like if bourbon is your thing, mm -mm. like this is all day man i mean you, you could and and it's like yeah you could really go like just keep pouring yeah. these back and it's like Whoa, fantastic yeah. thing. but you know the the rye guys and the bourbon people in you know, the bourbon guys and gals sure they know what they're doing and so yeah. when they get to it they'll still appreciate it even yeah, if it's not exactly if they want that that spice note you know that 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 richness from the rye or they want that corn note 
totally fine, but they'll still appreciate a good spirit. You know? that, and absolutely. I mean, this has the definitely, it's, it's got that mouth coat, that feel. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely awesome. Uh, Bailey, we don't want to keep you. I know we're, we got, uh, we're probably on a time schedule with you. We, we appreciate you coming on a couple more questions. If, if you have a couple of minutes, sure. I'm sure it sucks heading down to Barbados to go and, and visit with Richard. Somebody's got to do it. And, and Four Square, and you're down there, and it's like, ah, shit, I got to go do this again. Here we go. Um, so, so if you're if you're drinking, um, it, is there? And it could be one of these. It could be something different. What are you drinking when you go to Barbados and you're, you're kind of going through? I know you're sampling barrels, probably, but what are you what are you drinking? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're honestly, I've really become such a fan of our spirit. It's hard to go outside that, that, uh, realm. Honestly, I, I'm a long time tequila fan. Um, so I, I've had, I've been interested in tequila, but over the years in the, in the recent years, I've been able, I've had to stop drinking most tequilas because of the added propylene glycol. Hmm. Cause it, it makes me break out. Uh, and I, and in fact, I, I've had it in times when it, it was such a bad histamine reaction. I st- started limiting my ability to breathe. So oh, I'm wow. choking, like literally I'm about to pass out yeah. and I can't breathe. So I got to be super careful with that stuff. So I only go to things that I really know well at this point. Um, and so with the, with the real McCoy and, and any of the four square products, um, that's primarily what, what we're drinking. Um, there are a couple of tequilas and a couple of mezcals that, that I've gotten to know the producers or the people that, that really represent them well. And I've been getting their products from them and, and those are fantastic. Um, what else? I really love single malt whiskey and had a wonderful time uh, learning from Colin Poppy up in Scotland. Um, and so, you know, that's been a real interest of mine. Um, bourbon, of course, is a, is a fantastic spirit, but I've got, you know, sort of a limited amount of alcohol that I like to like to have in my life. Um, you know, as you can tell you, one thing when you start a brand, never get high on your own supply. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, don't get carried away because you can have it in your life all day, day if you want to. That's so you got to be careful. You got to build your own boundaries. You know. Yeah, sure. So, so we try to we try to keep it a little a little tight. Um, so that's we're mostly drinking our our, our rooms. Okay. All right. So, so Bailey. So off off of that, um, we do diamond in the rough. So you're going down there. So mm-hmm. yeah, I know I'm gonna give you Evergreen. Evergreen. So like, what are you doing, or where are you going? That's like, oh my, you've got to do this because well, I'm gonna leave it Evergreen because I don't I don't know if it's a restaurant or if it's a beach or what 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 is it do you like you have to do every time you go down there in Barbados? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, you have to go to La Caban, which is this amazing restaurant on the west coast, um, which they literally put the chairs and the tables in the sand and the ocean is lapping right up next to you. Wow. This like Gilligan's Island kind of environment, you know, it's all like, just, it's all outdoors. There's no walls to the place and everything is sort of thatch and, and natural. And it's really, really fun. And they make, they make excellent food. Um, the other thing I always love to do is go up to the North end of the Island and tour the St. Nicholas Abbey, uh, which is the oldest sort of, um, uh, I guess, uh, plantation or farm on the Island. And they have this amazing uh, family there that that is producing rum. They have their own distillery. They're growing the sugar cane there. They've got a steam press from, you know, I don't know when, probably turn of the first century, turn of the last century. Um, So they're crushing, using a steam engine right in front of you, and they're making it. It's fantastic. One last question. I go back to Cal. Uh, Do you drink coffee? I do. Where do you get your coffee from? Uh, my favorite place right now is a coffee. It's a coffee brand called Canyon that I buy at a friend's uh, bakery in Mystic, Connecticut, um, called Nana's. 
and I go to Nana's in the morning and, and I'll have coffees with them and they make a really fun coffee. It's, it, it's, uh, it's actually, um, uh, espresso and tonic. Oh, wow. on ice. I'm telling you, you got to try this. It is amazing. So take espresso, pour a shot of espresso over ice, you know, like you're going to do a little iced espresso and then just fill the cup with tonic water. And it's fantastic. But, but and I not, thought, not club first soda. It, I'm like, hell no. And I tried it. It's fantastic. Wow. Not club soda, tonic water. Tonic. Don't do club soda. It's tonic water. Wow. Okay. need that quinine part. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I've never even heard of anything remotely like that before. I knew I he would have a good answer. I need the email. I need the email from you saying, "Oh my God, I did it! It's phenomenal." <laughs> <laughs> I may, I may do one better. I'll just send you a video. Yeah, that'll be great. That'll nice. be great. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's easy to do. Okay, so uh, maybe the last question. I hope so. I know you got to go. Uh, but uh, so when you're when you're at Foursquare. And this is, uh, this is for my buddy, uh, liquor shop across the street. He was like, man, if we can get a pick from Foursquare, oh my God, would we love that? I'm like, what about the real McCoy? He's like, Hey, that's still Foursquare. No, no, but that, that's not the question. But when you're at Foursquare and you're eating and you're drinking the, I don't know if you're, if you're drinking it, like, are you going for the 12? If you're going neat, is that where you go? I'm usually going for the five. Honestly, I like the bourbon note that you start to get. So my flavor yeah. palette, I'm moving more in this sort of the bourbon direction, but with the five year. All right, so you go for the younger flavor component. Sure. All right, so you go for the five. What are you eating at uh, at at Foursquare? I mean, what's the meal that's being served? Well, there's no no food served at Foursquare. You know, it's just a it's just a factory. You know, it's a distillery. So there's no like restaurant there. There's a tasting room. But what would you eat with alongside this? I mean, Caribbean cuisine. Caribbean cuisine is is amazing, and and. uh, you know, really doing things like jerk chickens and things like that are fantastic with something like this. Um, uh, yeah, there's, I'm just trying to think of some of the other cuisine. There's, there's a quite a bit of curries and things that they do down there. Uh, all of that stuff goes really well. I think with but you're kind of running traditional plantains, beans and rice and jerk chicken and, uh, get, Fish you know, is massive obviously down there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cal, I'm getting with this three year for Bryson DeChambeau. If he ever runs out of anything to want to gain weight with, take the three year and eat some of those Girl Scout cookies of Samoas with it. That, that coconut <laughs> and that There's chocolate and caramel, and he's yeah. good to go. Yeah. Yeah. The, again, I mean, you could just pour these over ice, and you've kind of got a cocktail in uh, in a glass. I mean, it doesn't need much, man. These are absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Bailey, how many states, um, I know you're here in, in Georgia. I see you at, uh, my friend's bottle shop across the street on the shelf, mm-hmm. fairly priced for, uh, for a, a truly aged rum that's drinking like a bourbon, uh, or a whiskey. Uh, are you in all, uh, y- y'all in all contiguous states or? Where, yeah, where we're at? in, we're in, a, I think we're at this point, we're in about 48 states in the United States and we're in 13 countries internationally. Awesome. And so, um, so we're very, you know, we're, we're available. Most of the States you have to special order it or, you know, cause small craft brands, we're not out there to be on every single shelf in every single store in every single bar. That's not what we're about. Um, so you, if you're looking for something special like this, then you, you can special order it pretty much anywhere. If you go in and, and talk with them, um, on our website, there's a where to buy section. There's a little button you can press there and, and, and it'll drive you to drizzly and, reserve bar and, and those kinds of folks. So that if you're in one of the States that allows like shipping, um, they, then you can buy it online and they'll, and they'll deliver it to you. Um, or you can also look and see like, you know, what States are we available in and who our distributors are. And you can tell your local liquor store or your bottle shop, uh, you know, they're with this distributor and, 
this state. And yeah, they can awesome. look us up and get it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I, I sent Matt Horanek a, uh, a blind tasting that we're going to do in a, about a month with, um, uh, I don't know what I sent him, but uh, <laughs> I sent him something. And I'm definitely going to reload and I'm sending, we're having, uh, we're having rum gronies uh, yeah. during our recording with him. So uh, that's, yeah. uh, that's going to be good. We may try some kind of a, we may do a, kind of a rum martini. Maybe we can get some one. more like Costner stories out of them, you know? I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll do the best we can yeah. do the best we can. Uh, Bailey, thanks so much, man. Is there, I, if there's anything we left out, we'd love to chat with you again. Uh, I, I, I didn't leave. Well, I, I, I could sit around and talk and drink with you all night, but uh, you got things to do, my friend. Uh, thanks so much for sharing with us. Um, we, we really appreciate it. What a, what, yeah, a hell of a, hell of a thing you've built here, buddy. Yeah, and damn, and damn good run. Awesome. <laughs> Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you guys. Thanks Cheers. for having me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs>